Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. We all know that marketing is a commercial function, though it's often described as a creative field. So today we're going to discuss the business of making better branding decisions. And I can't think of anyone better to talk about this with and the science of marketing than Byron Sharp himself. Welcome to the show, Byron. Thank you. It's lovely to finally be here. Yeah. Well, let's start by you doing a little bit of an introduction about yourself. I'm someone who accidentally fell into academia and then woke up one day and realised I was a scientist, which was a bit weird since I hadn't really, that wasn't sort of what I thought. I thought I studied history and art history and things when I was at high school. Yeah, so I'm a marketing scientist, but let me um, let me not scare people off. I, I, it's part of it's part of a crusade of mine. Is, and the Aaron Big Bass Institute, I think, has been pretty successful in this and explaining to the marketing community that marketing science was, you know, like the stuff you learned at high school. It was about discovering things in the real world. It wasn't about geeky, ridiculous optimization maths and things like that. That's what's often called marketing science is actually engineering, really. So, you know, we, we, we go out into the real world and discover things and if anything, try to use as simple maths and, and method as possible and, and, and as transparent as possible because that's scientists really care about people can trust their results. Uh, so we try not to, you know, put on white coats and use big words and baffle our audience with science where you see a lot of that in, in marketing, which, uh, that's not science. That's, uh, that's naughty. <laughs> yes. And when you say real world, so you gather, gather the, the evidence from the real world, I imagine that you rely quite a lot on other brands sort of, you know, giving you the data and partnering with you to investigate what the truth behind something is. Do you find that brands are quite open in doing that and challenging their own assumptions of what works and what doesn't work? That is an enormous question. Uh, <laughs> certainly we have no lack of data partly because marketing collects a vast amount, you know, there are huge multi-billion dollar companies who do nothing but measure every single day what are people watching or what are people buying and, and also asking them, you know, perceptions and attitudes and things over and over. And uh, it's gotten increasing, the internet has made it increasingly cheap to collect that sort of data. So we're, we're quite rich in data in marketing. Surprisingly, we don't have that much knowledge in marketing. Uh, and then that's, I suppose, where the Aaron Big Bass Institute came in and showed people that you, you know, you could discover things about the real world. I once was at a conference and there was an Australian professor, I won't name the university, <laughs> to the business school. And before he said something like, there, there, there can be no laws in marketing. <laughs> and I just thought, well, then why do you charge such expensive MBA fees? <laughs> What's the point if you can't mm. if you can't establish any by scientific law? We don't mean a, you know thou shalt, but we mean this is this happens over and over and over. And I thought, yeah, that most academics have never looked. There's a lovely quote from Andrew Ehrenberg where he I think he published in, in one of the top science journals on some laws that day. So it's often the business professors would say, you know, oh, they can't be, you know, I'm sure consumers are too erratic and there could never be predictable patterns. It could never be anything like there are in physics or biology. And, and he would reply, 
have you looked? <laughs> Which is a sort of embarrassing mm-hmm. thing. We should never just assume that there aren't because Andrew went, well, I looked. I, you know, I had the temerity to actually bother to look. And uh, guess what? There's a lot of really robust patterns. Mm. And so in marketing, though, like particularly the marketing that's taught in schools or even, you know, the foundations of marketing that you're taught when you first come into the field is very much kind of anchored in, it's less laws, it's more principles, isn't it? It's like the principles of doing marketing versus actually gathering the knowledge that sits behind what you're doing, like the four Ps or the six Ps. Yeah, there's checklists like that. And, and I, I don't mind those. That's quite useful. And it's quite useful to read in a marketing textbook that there's this thing called an advertising agency and <laughs> they do creative stuff. And there's this thing called a media agency and, you know, and, and, and cookbook-like type things like, you know, if you're going to bake a cake, turn on the mm-hmm. oven before you start, you know. And, you know, if you're going to make some advertising, then book the media, you know, beforehand. That, that stuff is all very useful. But, yes, it's not very much about the real world other than usually some nice photos and things, mm-hmm. but there's not. I mean, the textbook we wrote, I was talking to a colleague who says, here's how radical it is. It has a whole chapter on media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Introductory textbooks don't have that. It has a whole chapter on, on shopping behaviour, what consumers do in store. Seems terrible. Uh, so great news. There's lots to discover in marketing. It's, but you do have to leave your university office and go out into the real world and collect some data. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so I think a lot of the times when people are collecting data, they do look at those, you know, m- more fun uh, arguably niche examples of where something has worked and then use that as a basis of thinking that that's how everybody should be doing marketing. You know, these kind of one-off rare cases like what Nike does in brand purpose as like the measure of success. Yes, yes. And there's a lot of, um, it's there's the, the error in that method is called survivor bias. You know, you, you, you look at one that's done X and you go, well, that must a that this, uh, it's called the halo effect. You know that that you know that, and that means every you know because they're successful, everything they do must have been because right. of the success. Well, I had a colleague used to always point out that the Roman army, which was pretty successful in its day, right, very successful, <laughs> but the generals used to consult things like chicken entrails or the way the chickens were pecking in the morning to, to whether to decide to go to battle. Now, <laughs> sound. Yeah, so you could say, well, the Roman army does it, so we better do that too. Uh, no, that was not the secret to their success. Uh, mm. And so, yes, there's, there's a danger from extrapolating from very, very small examples or not not checking. Maybe all the all the armies that fail also check chicken entrails beforehand. Oh. Maybe lots of the brands that have tried to adopt some purpose have actually not done very well. Maybe no one knows about Nike's purpose outside of the marketing community. <laughs> yes. Maybe the average person doesn't know what a brand purpose even is and it's just jargon that we're throwing around. Yeah. So we have research on this at the moment. We have uh, mm. Victoria Tate is um, collecting data on this to see what sort of knowledge consumers have and, and checking out the empirical claims. You know, So if you're going to do purpose, how should you do it? Are there some that do it? Should you have a purpose that's obviously linked to your brand, like, um, you know, pedigree Mm. dog adoption, or should you have something different because, you know, you need to, yeah. There are all these nice real-world questions that we should examine rather than having, marketers love 
having debates, don't they, on on LinkedIn or? <laughs> well, and and perhaps they love feeding in their own personal passion for life into of the course. brands that they manage. So yes. that that leads me beautifully to a question that I had for you, and it's like a little bit of a I don't know an oddball question, I guess you could say, but. What do you think the reason for being for a brand is or should be? Well, we 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 live in an amazing, an amazing time, amazing. You know, market economies are actually, you know, that large scale market economies are, are quite new. We tried alternative economists didn't know whether you should have a government planned economy or a market economy until very very recently, but unfortunately, last century, lots of countries tried experiments with non-market economies and uh, they amazingly despite cultural differences and implementation differences they all produced exactly the same result very very quickly which was economic stagnation starvation paranoid governments and then rolled out secret police uh, you know just absolute disasters and it doesn't matter whether that was done in Venezuela or Vietnam or um, or Soviet Union you know they all had exactly the same results so you know, say market economy is an amazing thing. It produces lots of products and lots of choice, which is very, very important. People actually probably care more about whether they're able to go into a supermarket and choose different types of chocolate than, than, than whether they're able to choose their member of parliament. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have a colleague who grew up in Soviet Union and, you know, she says just, what did she say when the Mars bar came in? Oh, that was just <laughs> so wonderful. When McDonald's <laughs> opened, there were huge queues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the purpose of a brand? It, it is. to uh, Profit is not a terrible thing. Profit means you are using society's resources efficiently and you're making something that other people want. People get very confused because we talk about money and GDP and all these abstract things, but the economy is people doing things for other people. Mm-hmm. And when the economy shrinks, it's, you know, that's why we worry about it. It's less, you know, fewer people doing things for other people. And so, you know, a brand that sells lots and at a profit is doing things for other people. And we, we're a bit snobby in marketing. You know, we, we, we tend to look down. It depends which company you're working for, you know, but you're, <laughs> you always look down on others of like, oh, that's, that's just sugar and fat that's contributing to obesity or, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, fragrances in your home are just totally, you know, pointless. You know, yeah, we love to sneer at other things, but, uh, well, let's take one of the, the, the terrible ones, soft drinks, right? Soft drinks for kids we think is terrible. But do you remember when you were a kid? And when it's your parents gave you a soft drink? It was fantastic, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So it gave you some joy in your life. So um, I think we should we need to stop being so snobby yeah. <laughs> and and realize that uh, I remember being um, I won't say what company it was, but it was a soap company, shall we? <laughs> shall we say? And and this this company has actually got a lot. It's got itself into quite a bit of a lot of trouble actually trying to find higher level purposes for some of its brands. And, and people are marketing a bit of a U-turn now. But I, years ago, I stood up in front of their, what did they call them? They had a quaint name, um, Country Chairman. <laughs> <laughs> the ch- yeah, just, mm-hmm. There were women there, but yes, uh, Chairman, Chairman of Countries. It was odd. And I said, you know, you may, soap, it's fantastic, hygiene. Humans didn't used to be very clean. I actually told the story of my my little dog, uh, my daughter's dog, 
It has a very, very thin coat, and but it still manages to shed fur throughout mm-hmm. the house, uh, including in summer and, and uh, sorry, including in winter, right? So in summer, I can understand Australian summer is hot. The dog mm-hmm. could lose its, you know, but in winter, it should try to hold, hold on to it. Uh, and then it dawned on me that dogs keep shedding fur because it's their way of keeping, you know, parasites and bacteria and things off them. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, staying clean is really important, keeps you alive. So, yeah, and you get these marketers that go, oh, right, you know, oh, geez, you know, I only, I only sell, you know, moisturiser or soap or, you know, mm-hmm. something. I've got to have a got yeah. to have a higher purpose as well. It's like, mm, well, <laughs> I don't think people on the street really think you do. There are also ethical problems of, uh, you know, taking your shareholders' money and, and putting it into your favourite social cause or charity. You've got to be very, very mm-hmm. careful about that. I mean, all our shareholders have their own charities and they might not agree with that. We're playing with their funds. Right. I think there's a fine line between really understanding where the world is headed and what problem you're solving versus getting caught up in the fact that you feel like you're some sort of a governance board. And you're trying yes. to legislate people's behaviours with yes. the product that you're trying to make money off. Yeah. I mean, we all want the world to be a better place. The good news is it is massively getting to be a better place. Uh, yes. I saw a lo- lovely post yesterday which said uh, the Times of India could have carried, for the last like decade or more, could have carried a story every single day which said 130,000 people got electricity today. Yeah, yeah got, amazing. Hooked, got hooked up, you know, and they could have run that story every single day. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So, the, mm. the, you know, marketers should cheer up. The world is getting to be a better place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, soft drinks and things like that, they're okay. Uh, but you ask a small child what they think of McDonald's. Right. <laughs> they right. don't say it's an evil US corporation. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> They don't say uh, they have a responsibility to make the world healthier. No, they just want a happy meal. Yes. Very true. (laughs) So I guess that leads me to a question because you you kind of just touched on, I guess, you know, like the, the history and the progress that we have seen, you know, more broadly in the world. But arguably, we have seen a lot of progress in marketing as well since it started, correct me if I'm wrong, like modern day marketing starting in the start of the last century around 1920 I think it was there's an old there's an old joke about marketing being the oldest profession yeah everyone lives by selling something and that's the wonder of a market Mm. economy you know Mm. uh, for hundreds of thousands of years if you wanted something you had to go out and catch it or make it yourself and the wonderful thing that humans learn to trust each other and specialize and we do trust each other right because (laughs) suddenly things stopped and we had to make our own Gosh, we couldn't even make our own coffee, could we? I don't know how to grow coffee beans, let alone <laughs> roast them or something. You know, so I mean, we really trust other people to help keep mm-hmm. us alive and existing, and that is a mm-hmm. that is a wonderful thing. And that is that is marketing, that is buying and selling. To work in marketing is a this is a fantastic time though because of the scientific revolution for marketing. Um, I mean, marketers have always been very good, creative and great tool makers, uh, great adopters of uh, new media like radio and, mm. and television. Mm. And, you know, we, we, we immediately saw things of like, ooh, we could put ads there and you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, 
So we've always been good at that, but we haven't been so good at, you know, we, we ran very much on folk stories and, 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 you know, just who was the most persuasive or the most prestigious, and we would just follow them, which is pretty, you know, medieval, you know. Well, that, that doctor says he's leeches. Are you sure? Yes, because they're very, you know, they're the doctor to the king, so shut up and listen to them. Uh, and, but now we had a, a bit of a scientific revolution, which I love pointing out to my research degree students of science. It's really quite punk. It's very anti-establishment. It's very, do not trust that person just because they are, you know, so-and-so. You know, where's their evidence? Check their logic. Arguably also the less fun part of marketing for a lot of people too, right? Like you're the the boring person that comes in with the evidence and people just want to talk about the fun creative part of marketing. I don't hold that. I don't get that view from our sponsors. Um, there's a fantastic video of an Australian winemaker uh, from Adam Wynn up in the Adelaide Hills. And, and he says that... Uh, before we learned the chemistry, before we understood microbiology and things, we, we, we didn't actually know. We, we, we could make wine, but we didn't know why. <laughs> we, right. we put the grapes into barrels and then sort of prayed, and sometimes it turned to vinegar and sometimes it turned to wine. And he said the, the problem that really hinders creativity because what happens is, you know, okay, you make good wine one year or, or better than previously, right? and then... What do you do the next year? Well, you just copy everything that you did and, and everything actually gets very, which it did for, for hundreds of years, winemaking was heavily regulated and because people said, you've just got to do it this way because there's no room for creativity. Uh, it'll turn to vinegar. We don't know. Uh, but once you do understand, will I have a malolactic secondary fermentation or not? Will I do this or not? You know, they, they can play around a lot now because they know they're not going to, make bad wine. And that, I think, is the great contribution of having some scientific knowledge about the real world. We can then exercise our creativity. When, you know, when we say that the dominant theory is that brands compete and grow, depending on their mental and physical availability, you're like, okay, right, well, that really focuses my mind. I must suddenly reach is not optional. Creativity is not optional because I suddenly realise oh, right, uh, most of my customers hardly ever buy me and don't care about me very much. Well, I better say something interesting if I want to get their attention because, <laughs> they're you know, they're really not interested in me. Gosh, right? So this is very, it, it gives you a lot of guidance. But, but think of, there's a million ways of doing that. And so it opens up huge creativity, but with a certain confidence of at least you know the right direction you should go in. I remember a creative in an ad agency said to me, the most scary thing is a blank piece of paper. <laughs> you know, mm. when someone just says, be creative, like, what? Well, you've got to yeah. give me some, you've got to give me some guidelines. And it's like when someone begins a movie and it's going, okay, you've got Tom Cruise, right? What are you going to do with him? <laughs> you know, you know, you know mm. what you can what you can do and what you can't do. And so I think it unleashes creativity. Otherwise it's just very random. Yeah. Well, and particularly for people who feel like knowledge is powerful starting point for creativity. So connected into that, what I really love is that there is a point that you made on social media recently where you said good media buying makes it harder to attribute advertising sales to marketing. 
which I thought was really refreshing, particularly with um, what you were saying just then, because I know that I've been in rooms with our media agencies where they feel like, okay, if reach and, you know, gaining the maximum reach with the right frequency is the goal, okay, our dollars are maxed out. What else can we do? So I think that like they would be really happy to hear that. (laughs) They and marketers, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot when we say, you know, you must judge us by sales that we can see in this week in our weekly sales. You know, we ran the ad this week. You must, we must be able to see it, which is totally acceptable for things that we do in store or, um, you know, paid search or, you know, we put some, you know, we pay for a listing on Amazon because that only reaches the people who are just about to buy. So we should be able to see that immediately. Mm. That's totally acceptable. But Amazon is completely different. At some point, a, you know, five-year-old learns that golden arches mean McDonald's and, Mm. uh, Mm. They don't have any money at the moment. So you could say, well, that's terrible return on investment. Well, that's true, but think of the value in that over the rest of their life. It's enormous. So uh, our advertising effects are spread very, very thinly into time. So so we do need to use other metrics to evaluate them, and we, we have evidence based on what a good media plan should be. And so we can go to the chief financial officer and say, this is where we are on these metrics and this year we're going to improve those. This is what we're going to try to move to. This is what we're going to try to move to. And uh, that will put us in a stronger position. You will, you know, that will eventually gain us market share or make our advertising more able. But it's only one of the things that drives our market share. There's a few other little things, you know, <laughs> like what competitors are doing, what prices are doing, what product we actually had and we're able to get out the door. So we're not going to take credit for any sales movement, okay, <laughs> which the, the CFO always knew. And we great, I will judge you on metrics that are appropriate for you. In the same way they judge the factory, right? They don't judge the factory on and say to the factory, right, if you don't lift market share this year, you know, I'm not buying you any more machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a great analogy too because it's important to be able to show your business exactly you know where you put your money, what that generates for you, or why like why what's the logic behind investing in certain yes. areas, versus I think a lot of traditional marketing used to just rely on on trust, right? Like yes. it works, yes. just trust us. Yeah, and so unfortunately we went from that going, all right, yes, my marketing has a problem. So the only solution to that is that we must show the sales Mm. effects. And then that pushes us into just spending our money on in-store and price promos and things like that. So some of our sponsors do other things. They, 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 They go, look, look, this is the last decade of our communication. Look at it. Look how inconsistent it is. Oh, it's terrible. Look. Look how we don't use our distinctive assets, and suddenly we are, and there's no discipline there, right? So next decade, we've decided on these assets we're going to invest in, you know, and, and so they they show that that's what they're going to do, and and then you know, general managers do believe in advertising; they just want to see that you you know you've got some discipline, and you're not just they're not just funding trips to Cairns so that you can pick up awards and mm-hmm. drink rosé on the beach. Mm. And that's the perception also of just advertising agencies and gurus in general. And there's there's a comment that you made before where, and actually on another podcast that I was listening to, where you said that in part marketers are 
like salespeople also, they need to be persuasive and so much of it is about negotiation. So that's definitely an element of it too. Do you feel like marketers also need to be better researchers? Yeah, well, marketers need to be, yeah, a bit more like, dare I say, scientists. They need to be open-minded but sceptical and they need to be asking these empirical questions. You know, they need to find out about the real world rather than debating about it. And the future is... So I just got asked by a journalist, you know, predict, you know, some predict, make some predictions, make some forecasts, which is a monk's game. But I said, look, no one, no one, no. at the end of this year, are the major Western economies going to be in recession or are we still, you know, like no one, and that's exactly the same as like, who would have ever predicted? No one would have predicted. The consequence of, you know, at, at the end of the pandemic, we will have labour shortages. What? No. Mm. People were, you know, like us, were, were dusting off their, you know, recession reports to release to people. And no, it was, it's so hard to predict. So all we know is that at the moment it's very turbulent, but there are labour shortages. There's a shortage of talent. So I would expect you're going to see a lot of senior people saying, this is not a year to make big changes because we don't know what's happening. And we haven't got the people to do it. <laughs> so the, uh, probably one of the changes they will make is let's look at automating more things. Uh, and so automation is going to be probably, you know, next 10 years is going to be a thing that really does affect uh, departments in, in, a, in a good way, hopefully. You know, hopefully those social media switch shops will be replaced by artificial intelligence, hopefully. I always feel sorry for the marketing graduate who gets their exciting job in digital marketing and then, you know, what do you do? I have to come up with a Twitter post every day and, and increase it. It's mm-hmm. about this legal practice. It's, it's, not, it's not very interesting. Yeah, okay. So hopefully artificial intelligence will help us uncover those. And then, and then so you go, well, then what are the marketers doing? Well, then the marketers now need to be doing the non-automated things. And so they they need to be doing experiments. They need to be finding out about the real world. So, yes, I think marketers do need to become more like scientists, which doesn't mean a lack of creativity. I mean, it's very hard to be a scientist if you can't be creative. Can I tell you a funny story? I was at a conference in, uh, in uh, the UK once and um, this person, well, it's not a question, is it? They made a comment. They were from Google, actually. Okay. And they said, so this, this, but I, this, I think I was talking about double jeopardy, right? Bigger brands. And, and they went, so to be a big brand, it's, it's just, it's just basically how much budget you've got. <laughs> and I went, that is the most unimaginative, uncreative <laughs> interpretation I've ever heard. <laughs> they were very good about it. They came up afterwards and, and we had a good laugh about it, but because um, mm-hmm. it was a great, you know, it was a great comment to put, but, you know, we do have to, it does doesn't it surprise you how often marketers talk about creativity but then put out lots of near-identical ads that are really boring or, uh, or, or will say things like that, like, oh, oh mental availability, ah, oh, right, so it's just how much you spend on advertising. And like, no, it could be a bit more complicated than that. Or, well, I've seen your, I've seen your, I've seen your results for, I don't know, retail stores and things, but would that apply to me? Oh, you know, I sell earth-moving equipment. Does, I, I don't think it'd be the same. Or... Like, well, mm. could perhaps use some creativity. Have a think about it. Think how, how it might apply to you. It's almost like a contest of who can be more clever. 
I think it's not actually even creativity. It's just clever, like clever slogans, a clever approach, a clever media buy. Really? Okay. Rather than being creative. That's an interesting, yeah, maybe. I, I told a CEO recently, a you know, non-marketing person, because he was needing someone who actually really brought some creativity into the business. And uh, I said, a lot of people are, you know, and I said, think of a luxury watch ads. They're all identical, right? They have the celebrity posing with their sleeve down a bit so you can see the watch, <laughs> yeah? So Leonardo DiCaprio, Hugh Jackman, whatever. Mm. And I said, it's amazing. Even the time on the watch is, is, is actually always identical. It's always like eight minutes past 10 or 10 minutes past 10. And he, and he wrote to me a few days later and he went, when you said that, I did not believe you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I've been looking at ads and it's true. <laughs> It's the Illuminati, clearly. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, a bit generic. But then, you know, the mar- the marketer would argue that that's the codes of the category. Well, maybe. <laughs> yes, maybe. I've never heard, I've heard these vague explanations for it. People go, oh, I think it it makes the watch look like a smiley face. It makes it look really like, really? Have oh, you done goodness. any? Like, you know, you don't know, do you? So, you know, that's our discipline, where we're coming from. It's hard to be creative if you... Yes, I suppose it is that medieval, it's like the winemaker thing, isn't it? Like everyone goes to make the, the watch ad and they go, hey, no, you've put, you've put the time as 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You, oh, I don't know if we could do that. Too uh, risky. That's too scary, yeah. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> you, you don't know. You don't know. So you don't know whether it matters or not. And so mm-hmm. good, goodbye mm-hmm. creativity. So that Google story that you mentioned there where someone comes up to you and they try to almost like prove you wrong or debunk something that you said, I can imagine that you get that quite a lot in part because you're very confident because you are presenting, you know, the evidence and facts and knowledge built through research. So how do you like keep your confidence up when you get that all the time? Uh, well, no, it's great. I mean, it's good to get questions so that we uh, think about things. Yeah, sure, I don't like this. No one likes the smart aleck ones where, you know, I always say at conferences, I'm very happy to take conf- uh, questions, but can I just point out that a you know, question has to have a question mark at the end of it, please? Because, <laughs> you know, there's always that person at conference who stands up and just talks for five minutes and bores everyone in the room when they, they just really want people to look at it. So, no, no one likes that, but, it, no, it's good for people to ask questions. I mean, we, we, like the chapter that Jenny and I did in How Brands Grow Part 2 on luxury is um, oh yeah, really, <laughs> I think it's a really good chapter. I don't, I think the luxury industry's managed to <laughs> quite ignore it, but, uh, you know, they said luxury could be different and, and for reasons people said, you know, having more availability might make the brand look every day and uh, restricting distribution might give it might be necessary to for a luxury brand to hold on to its you know cachet and things and that sounds that's worth investigating right that sounds plausible turns out to not be true but that, that that's interesting that's interesting <laughs> in itself right but uh but it's a worthy question to ask I, I don't mind that at all 
Yeah, I know. I only mind people when they say things like, uh, "Well, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got data that shows the opposite." You go, "Great, could you share the data?" Oh no, 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 we can't. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What about the people who don't know better? So for, and I, I say that flippantly in part because uh, obviously now in McDonald's we're bringing in Ehrenberg Bass quite a lot more, and we're embracing laws of growth. I'm not speaking on behalf of the company here, but it's just a question that, you know, what do you feel that you are faced with most often when you're approaching someone or an organization that doesn't abide by laws of growth? Like what's the biggest pushback that you get? Well, the biggest problem is it's, it's hard to change big corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a small business where the CEO gets it, you know, it's much easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. They, you know, also CEOs do tend to be quite, you know, startup companies and they do tend to be quite creative and adventurous people. So they're willing to make changes very quickly. But when you're talking about, you know, $20, $50 billion companies, <laughs> uh, as they say, you know, large battleships are hard to turn around, but they're not large battleships. They're more like a, a flotilla of ships all, all bound together with, you know, by rope. And so, you know, you move one of them, but then the others pull it back. You know, it's, it's very hard. So, uh, you know, I think... Uh, our sponsors have started, well, they taught us this, that they, they said, you know, actually, this is actually quite shocking. Um, some of our board members, one, I can't remember who it was, but someone said, we don't actually sponsor you for the, like, the new reports, you know, the new discoveries. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> they're, they're, no, 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 we're not letting you off the hook. You do need to keep doing that. But your value to us today is actually the, the old discoveries and, mm implementation so we sponsor you just to be close to your researchers and so we can i suppose what they're saying is quite honestly a lot of their staff aren't that creative and are nervous and tend to you know do things the way they used to do things so they need to be able to talk to you and work things through and and gain the confidence so if that's hard and when you've got thousands of marketers so that is the challenge that most of our sponsors are, are grappling with. Uh, Bruce McCall from Mars said it's it's two steps forward, one step backwards. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, hopefully. Okay, that's the best <laughs> you can hope for. You'll always have steps backwards, okay? You will always have steps mm-hmm. backwards. Uh, and, you know, because you hire new staff, it's like, you know, you just like you suddenly discover, you know, you did this distinctive asset study, you put in place a thing, everyone got it, and then suddenly you discover what are, sorry, what are they doing in Indonesia? What, what are they doing? What, what, where did that come from? Oh, someone had a good <laughs> idea and they decided to throw them out. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to get into trouble, but I would love your take on the M&M's characters and what they're doing uh, with yes, that. Yeah. I think, it, yes, it caused a bit of consternation in, in the Institute, but um, to be honest, I don't think many, I don't, outside the marketing community, I don't think anyone's noticed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the thing was to be a bit controversial and, and well, to try to stoke controversy and and, and mm. say they're disappearing and then bring them back, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's a stunt. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mars, but we all know <laughs> it's a stunt. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if I asked my daughter, she'd go, "What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you know this new M&M's character?" She'd go, "No." I mean, most people can't even name them; they just know there are M&M's characters. Yeah, they don't know their personalities and their inner goals and life aspirations. 
Oh, dear. Um, So uh, then what I'd love to get your take on is, I guess, the flip side of that, which is that when you come into an organization, sometimes the pushback is that they think, well, like, yes, of course this makes sense because we've been doing it for years. So like, why do we need the new knowledge. So what value do you guys think uh, what the Ehrenberg Bass Institute brings to new media and those areas where brands are spending a shit ton of money experimenting, essentially, without any evidence? Yes, I feel I failed when, when, you know, we held a big conference in Walton and, you know, and we're not... And we said, here's this, wow, digital revolution's happening with this new media. We, you need to do experiments. But I didn't mean experiments as, as in just, hey, let's just do stuff. <laughs> I, I, I mean mm-hmm. real test and learn, which is exactly what the uh, Facebooks and things of this world did. And, and a lot of testing and learning on like what their websites and things should look like. But our market is... People say the Aaron Bass is terribly influential, but we certainly weren't. On, I, I, I remember talking to Mark Pritchard, right, from, from P&G, so you know, probably still one of the biggest advertisers, certainly in America. And I said, Mark, you know, we um, as marketers used to buy outdoor at, at, a, at a discount, right? I mean, especially big, sensible marketers like you would, would not pay a premium for outdoor because we'd say, we can't trust your numbers. I'm sorry, we can't trust your numbers about how many people are going past this billboard. So because of that risk, we will we will pay less, right? Mm. You try to sell it to more to the, you know, local fish and chip shop, but not us. Yeah. And then new media came along and we just went, hey, take the money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you can, oh, Meta, Google, you won't provide us with any independent <laughs> validated numbers. That's okay. Just take the money. Right. And Mark, uh, yes, smiled wryly and said, yes, no more. We're stopping. Mm, yeah. mm. Well, it's interesting because it's it's that whole like likelihood to see. And when new media comes in with, no, no, this is actually the numbers of who's looking at it. They're not telling you likelihood to pay attention, right? Well, they're not telling, you know, there's been just a, you know, a long train wreck of, you know, revelations like, oh, you know, I mean, like when Google came, when Google came out and went, uh, well, we're changing the metric to not was the ad served by the ad server, but did the ad actually appear on screen? <laughs> and you're like, what? And then they went, and then they said, so you'll probably have to, when you're bidding, you'll probably have to pay double because... Half half the time previously, you know, half these versions went, you know, you thought you were getting a cheaper price, but actually it was only the ad server was serving it off screen. It's like, mm. wow, okay, all right, oh, well, that's good. That's good to know, right? Okay, half my exposures weren't really real. And so, you know, we had these extraordinary numbers. Remember when Facebook talk, talked about the targeting you could get? Someone pointed out that they, I don't know, they said 18 to 28-year-olds in the UK, and people went, there aren't that many 18 to 28-year-olds <laughs> in the entire country. Like, oh, uh, yeah. So, yes, uh, you know, this happens always when there's new technology. We have to learn how to use it. Um, mm. uh, there's a long way to go. I mean, this next 10 years, the hot new media will, of course, be TV again as um, the, the big global channels of Netflix and Disney and things uh, become ad-supported. And that will remind us as advertisers that we never actually learned that much about TV. Mm. 
Yeah. Or the new radio podcasts. So yeah, if Aaron Burke Bass would like to advertise on looking outside, okay. <laughs> just let me know. Radio is huge. Radio is still huge. Is it? it surprises me. Yes. Oh, yeah. The, okay. the, the numbers in the US are just astonishing, really okay. big. And so and you're even seeing packaged goods companies going back into uh, mm. radio. Obviously has the disadvantage that you can't show the pack, but for very big brands, that's not such a problem. So it's amazing how resilient. I would have thought the iPod would have killed radio. It's not. <laughs> I, I think that there's uh, so much more knowledge that you're going to be bringing into the, the industry and the field. And I hope that you bring it with a lot of punk. I love that. Um, Byron, whenever, you get, mm. whenever you get a scientist who's not being, who's being very establishment and they, they yes. just remember that's not science, that's anti-science. That's anti-science, it's, not punk enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> love it. So Byron, one last question for you before I let you go is what I really loved actually was when you said at the very start that you're, you say you thought you would uh, do something in your career to do with history. So obviously you've scattered like little historical facts and stories throughout this entire podcast. So you can okay. tell us you're, oh, like, yeah. I, I noticed that, yeah. you're a little <laughs> bit of a historian at heart, I think still. So obviously a very, very insightful and curious person, but what is your go-to when you're trying to push yourself to look outside and gain fresh perspective? I think I get out into nature. I think, mm-hmm. you know, which is, I think, a, a good. I think that somehow that makes us. I don't know why makes us more creative. Get away from the office. Well, when our board told us to write how brands grow, like, I remember our commercial director Elka rolling your eyes, thinking that's not going to happen because they were asking us to write about our sort of older, more fundamental discoveries, not the new stuff, right? and because they wanted a book that they could give to the CEO. Oh, oh gosh. So uh, I don't know if you know, but Square is mostly written in France, mostly in Bordeaux, which is a fabulous city in, in France, at least in summer. A lot of it actually is uh, written in the Apple Store, which has this gorgeous view out onto the Place de Comedy. And so why? Why did I do that? Because sustained <laughs> writing is quite hard. And so I, what I wanted is, you know, like I, when I pulled my head out of the computer, and had to do, you know, everyday stuff like go to the supermarket, I'd be going to an exciting French <laughs> supermarket. You know, just things, everything would be new and, and that would make it easier to be creative and think of things. And so, I, I, yeah, I would really encourage people to do that. If you've got something that requires sustained deep thinking, you need to also have those lovely little breaks and those breaks can't just be, you know, going and doing the washing and stuff. You've got to make it a little, mm. I mean, you have to do those things, so you have to make it a little bit exciting. So, I don't know, go to your holiday house or leave your office and go and sit in a McDonald's and watch people. Catch public transport. It's great. You get to watch people. Yeah, and like a little burst of um, something surprising or something different that maybe makes you think differently about what you're, what you're working on. Absolutely. Byron, this was so enjoyable. I could easily talk to you for another hour, but I know you're in high demand. So thank you so much for doing this and for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good fun.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share the show, and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.